Hello, and welcome to the Gravel Ride Podcast, where we go deep on the sport of gravel cycling through in-depth interviews with product designers, event organizers, and athletes who are pioneering the sport. I'm your host, Craig Dalton, a lifelong cyclist who discovered gravel cycling back in 2016 and made all the mistakes you don't need to make. I approach each episode as a beginner to unlock all the knowledge you need to become a great gravel cyclist. This week on the show, I'm excited to have Lori Barrett. She's the U.S. Managing Director of Rotor Bike Components. Rotor is a Spanish company that was founded in the mid-90s that has been focused on pushing the performance of bicycles ever since. Most known for their cranks and power meters, the company also offers a hydraulic drivetrain. You heard me right, a hydraulic drivetrain. I had met the team briefly at the Big Sugar Race in Bentonville, Arkansas last year, but recently had a listener reach out and mention they had purchased some rotor cranks, and I was curious. I'd started seeing them around a bit, and I wanted to learn more about what the company had in store for us. So I was excited to dig in with Lori and talk all about the brand's history, about Lori's journey to becoming the U.S. Managing Director, and what else they have in store for us in the gravel market. After we finished recording the show, the team at Rotor reached out to me with something unexpected. They wanted to offer any Gravel Ride podcast listeners 20% off their orders. And you can simply visit rotoramerica.com for that discount. The code is thegravelride20. Before we jump in, I do need to thank this week's sponsor, Hammerhead and the Hammerhead 2 Computer. I know many of you are familiar with the Hammerhead 2 computer at this point. It's the most advanced GPS cycling computer available today with industry-leading mapping, navigation, and routing capabilities that set it apart from other GPS options. The reason I'm confident in saying that it is the most advanced GPS cycling computer available today is because I get bi-weekly software updates from them. So I know they're constantly working on the platform and tweaking it based on riders' needs. So unlike other units, your Karoo 2 continues to evolve and improve, with each ride being better than the last. You can seamlessly import routes from Strava, Commute, and more. You can route, reroute, and create pin-drop routing on the fly, all with turn-by-turn directions and upcoming navigation changes. You know I love the climber feature that was rolled out last year, so I can see in advance what's ahead of me, the elevation, the pitch, the grade, how long the climb is, This is super useful. And now with predictive path technology, it allows you to visualize and prepare for upcoming gradient changes in real time, with or without the route loaded. This is critical for me because I kind of, at this point, I know my range. I know at what grade I feel decent and what grade I'm going to suffer. So maybe I'm a glutton for punishment, but I love seeing what's out there ahead of me. For a limited time, our listeners can get a free heart rate monitor with the purchase of a Hammerhead Karoo 2 computer. Visit hammerhead.io right now and use the promo code THEGRAVELRIDE at checkout to get yours today. This is an exclusive limited time offer only for our podcast listeners. So don't forget to use the code THEGRAVELRIDE. That's a free heart rate monitor with the purchase of a crew too. Go to hammerhead.io, add both items to your cart, and use the promo code THEGRAVELRIDE today. With that business behind us, let's jump right into my conversation with Lori. Hey Lori, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Super excited to talk with you today. 
Yeah. And I love that background you have there in Utah. It looks like you live in a beautiful place. <laughs> I do. I'm sorry. Like probably all you're seeing right now are the, the beautiful puffy sky uh, clouds um, kind of reflected in the window. But uh, from what I'm looking at, I have a little screen and then I have beautiful meadows and mountains. So not a not bad terrible. spot. Yeah, it's all right. To start out the conversation, Lori, where did, where did you grow up and how did you find the bike? Oh, gosh. Um so I'm from Austin, Texas, and um, like even from college, like I had our household had an outpost for um, the Yellow Bike Project. So a San Francisco based collective that tries to um, repurpose bikes and provide bikes for people that don't have them, basically. So even back then, we were all into bike culture and my roommates all worked at bike shops, things like that. Um, I was sort of a casual rider and commuter, you know, for college and everything else uh, until a little later. And then um, somebody handed me a road bike and I pedaled off. And the first like official road ride that I did uh, was like maybe 45 miles, which, you know, not insignificant for a first ride <laughs> and kind of never stopped pedaling after that um, kind of um, just loved it. Um, ended up racing road bikes full time with uh, an elite domestic team out of Austin and uh, ended up running that team and helping cultivate newer talent, um, some of whom you know are still out there, which is really cool. I saw you saw had Whitney Allison uh, on your podcast. She was yeah. one of my riders. Um, and uh, Lauren Stevens was on our team. Anyway, it's just it's really cool. We had a great group of women that uh, some of whom have stayed in the industry and, you know, continue to love and race their bikes. Yeah. Anyway, now I'm not fast anymore. I raced on the road. I raced on the track. I raced mountain bikes. I've done everything from match sprints to um, enduro mountain bike races. So kind it. of all forms of wheeled um, travel. I have a lot of commuters now. I think my next one's going to be an e-cargo bike, which I'm kind of excited about. Um, That's good. Yeah. Anyway. All of it. Nice stuff. Mm -hmm. So that's that's amazing. So from your origins in Austin, racing mm -hmm. on the road, mm -hmm. you discovered a little mountain biking. When did you discover yep. gravel riding and how does that fit into mm -hmm. what you enjoy doing? Well, yeah, I was just talking with someone about this the other day. So our uh, roads around Austin, I mean, what I loved about where I lived there is that I had from my house on the east side of town, I had loops that I could do that were 30 miles, 45 miles. You could kind of just add these kind of like uh, farmland roads. And for us, the sign of a good ride, and we called them road rides, was basically what we call Roubaix. Um, so basically uh, caliche or gravel sections that we would spend miles on because then you knew you didn't have traffic. So and, you know, and also however many um, cattle guards you went over. That was the other the other hallmark. But so that was, we were riding, I mean, I don't know, probably 30% of our road rides, if you went over, you know, 50 or 60 miles, were at least partially gravel. And so we were doing that on, you know, back then, 23 mil tires. <laughs> 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 kind of build your tolerance for, uh, for a little bit of rough road. Um, but yeah, so I would say that's when. Nice. Yeah. It, I was listening to someone the other day and they were talking about their experience as a road rider and mm. riding dirt roads. I think it was out in Boulder, oh, yeah. Colorado and mm -hmm. how now it, they don't, they're not affected in the same way others are when they're riding their quote unquote road bikes oh, yeah. in the dirt sections of BWR, for example, because it's something they've been doing for a while. Yeah. 
decades. I mean, it's funny. Actually, I did a really fun road ride, road, a little bit in air quotes, out in Boulder um, that included a fun dirt section, and I got to pet a wallaby. It was with some of the cycling tips guys, and um, actually one of my, you know, whatever my wins in my past, you know, have been for as a bike racer, I got a top 10 on a Boulder road ride, and all I can say is that's probably one of the great achievements of my professional cycling career. <laughs> Too bad they don't have a leader's jersey for that one. I know, right? I probably, I'm sure I was bumped years ago now, but whatever. I'll, I'm still holding on to it. So it sounds like you sort of went from a racer to a little bit of team management. And then how did you find your way into the bike industry beyond oh the racing side of things? Yeah. So, um, well, basically I'd been, you know, racing bicycles and I started off working for Cliff Bar and I ran event and athlete sponsorship for them out of Texas. And um, after a few years of it, I felt kind of like it wasn't really challenging me professionally anymore. Um, you know, it's interesting. I mean, the way the simplified way to explain it is that I had a pot of money and a pot of product. And my job was to figure out strategic ways to allocate these things that supported the sales team ultimately. And in retrospect, it was actually a really good, um, a really good kind of strategic way to consider how you invest resources. And it kind of prepared me later for, for other things. But uh, at once I decided it was kind of time to move on, I ended up taking a job with a sales agency. So within the bicycle industry. And so I was a sales rep for someone else's agency. And after a couple of years of that, I left and I started my own. And after a couple of years of that, um, I had an offer to be a national sales manager for Reynolds, the wheel company. And yeah. that's actually what moved me to Utah from Texas. So I sold my sales agency there. It still exists. I've hired them back for Rotor, which is pretty cool. Nice. Um, and just so, yeah. so people understand like a sales agency in the bike industry, as I understand oh, yeah. it and, and uh -huh. have observed it, you've got independent sales reps that can be hired by multiple brands at a time. And these are individuals that go to shop, shop by shop by shop in their territory and mm -hmm. sell Reynolds wheels or Oakley sunglasses or Jira mm -hmm. helmets, whatever they are to right. the shop owners. Exactly. So, and thank you for clarifying that, you know, it's the problem because um, non-endemic <laughs> listeners, which I imagine most are, it would be a pretty kind of vague thing. Um, yeah. So like, for instance, maybe my Texas sales reps work with Tifosi and Pivot Mountain Bikes and, um, you know, uh, Met Helmets. And, you know, it's just kind of a, a package of brands, a portfolio, really. Yeah. And they try not to have competing brands. So obviously they're not going to have Pivot and Yeti or, you know, whatever. Um, yeah. So it's uh, that way they can work with all of the local bike shops. And um, like, you know, we're just talking about Texas. So usually a region, the region depends on the territory, but like in Texas's case, it's Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, Arkansas. So you have these four states. And so you have multiple sales reps and, you know, tech reps. And it's sort of its own little, you know, it's an agency model. So yeah. we had a few reps and a few tech reps and, you know, tried to take great care of the bike shops with that. Got it. So then you moved on to the company side with Reynolds. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then where do you go from there? So with Reynolds, it was an interesting opportunity and I learned a lot, um, you know, running all the sales reps and kind of managing the positions I'd been in prior. Um, but then when the position came open to be the managing director for Rotor, it was, you know, kind of a chance to continue learning. I call it the do-it-yourself MBA. So it's um, it's a chance to keep 
you know, keep myself from getting bored and uh, keep kind of being able to pull more and more of the levers within it, within a brand and within a company. Let's, we'll come back to kind of your arrival at Rotor, but because mm-hmm. the company was founded prior to that point, I imagine, let's mm-hmm. take a step back and, and talk about Rotor. And as you understand it, what was the inspiration behind starting Rotor? What products did they begin with? And then we can talk a little bit about how it's evolved and, and when you joined. It's a Spanish-based company. So mm-hmm. obviously opening up and having a managing director in the U.S. is a step in the progression. But let's start at the beginning. And what's Rotor? How, why was it founded? What was it all about? So uh, you have a guy named Pablo Carrasco, who is sort of like the mad scientist. And he wants to create solutions to problems. And the problem that he saw was the dead spot in writer's pedal strokes, right? So, you know, when we, um, if you look at like a, a, a torque analysis of your pedal stroke, not to get too data nerdy here, then obviously most people know that most of the force that they put down on a pedal is down. You aren't really able to pull, even with clipless pedals, maybe there's some amount that, you know, is pulling up, but for the most part, that's not where you have a dead spot. Let's say if you're looking at a clock face between, you know, 7 and 9 p.m. on the clock face, where you're putting out very little force. So Pablo came up with a few different solutions, um, some of which were more commercially viable than others. So there was an entire rotor bike that had a, like it had uh, two spindles. Anyway, there's there's some bananas stuff that he had created, which is wildly efficient for pedal stroke, but also, you know, weighed 30 pounds or something absurd like that. So came up with the compromise of the um, the Q rings, the rotor oval chain rings, and so with a um, which basically are everybody always thinks about it from the perspective of maximizing the force that you're able or the use that you're able to get out of the force that you put downward, but really it's about decreasing the amount of time that you spend in the dead spot of the pedal stroke, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. So, yeah, I remember sort of gosh, just being a fan of road racing. And mm-hmm. I don't even know how many years this would be ago, mm-hmm. 25 years with Bobby mm-hmm. Julek coming out with oh, yeah. riding oval chain rings and really yep. espousing the virtue of, again, eliminating that dead spot in the pedal stroke to maximize the power that is in the, you know, the non-dead spots. Absolutely. And, you know, that was, you know, it, it was really once, you know, we started having adoption within the Tour de France and we had, you know, a winner in the yellow jersey, you know, winner of the Tour de France, that it it kind of became more, mm, you know, not socially acceptable, but, that you know, it just kind of became more normalized, I guess. Yeah, um, yeah. And it's still, you know, it's, I've had people, you know, if I'm in a group of people that don't know me or my affiliation with Rotor, what oval chain rings are, if I'm riding, people, I've had people say, oh, there's something wrong with your chain ring. And I'm like, because they're looking at it, and if you're just looking at it, it I don't know, it's yeah, it looks less round, obviously. So yeah, it's 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 a funny thing. And did he come at it from a, a scientific background and sort of identify like if we're if we're measuring power around the pedal stroke that empirically speaking there mm-hmm. is this dead spot and you can improve one's power output via an ovalized chain ring. Yeah. And I mean, so his background is engineering. He's a mechanical engineer. Um, and so he approached it from an engineering standpoint. But yeah, basically the same thing. What's interesting now is that 
our um, our power meters all come with a software that includes a pedal stroke analysis. If you've ever ridden like the old school like uh, Computrainers or something, there was a you could make a little peanut shape with your pedal stroke left and right, and what that was doing was measuring your power output on the left, your power output on the right, and that was the left and right halves of the peanut. And the split in the middle, the bifurcation, was basically the dead spot at the back of your pedal stroke. If you could pedal with 100% efficiency, then you would actually make a circle instead of a peanut, right? What's interesting, so we do, you know, um, like, I don't know, at events and stuff, we'll have ones that people can hop on and just kind of play with. And like at Sea Otter, we did gold sprints for uh, for fun and prizes, which was, was super fun. But um you know, of course, if we're having an event set up, we have platform pedals on it so people can just hop on in their sneakers. Um, you can actually change the um, the pedal to a platform pedal and or the, I'm sorry, excuse me, change the ring to an oval chain ring with the platform pedal. And you see the split, that bifurcation go down. So basically you see the reduction in time spent in the dead spot. You see kind of quantified the uh, improvement in efficiency with the use of an oval chain ring. And, you know, like we make we make round chain rings also. So but this is it's just an interesting anecdotal piece. I mean, if you're sprinting and you're going to stomp on it, you know, or if you're on a track bike, you know, a round ring uh, can make more sense. But like time trialists all day long. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting. So it started out. Can you. um Tell us what year it started out. So what year did the first rotor chain ring hit the market? So uh, 25 years ago. So that would be uh, 20. Now it's 26 years. Last year was our 25th anniversary. So that would be, uh, let's see, it's oh, so 1997. Okay. And am I correct that it was in Madrid that the That's company right. was founded? We're based out of Madrid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah. And so why don't we trace a little bit of the evolution of the product line from that origin story of chain rings and what was the next opportunities that that he saw in the development of the product? Well, I mean, Pablo's goal has always been to make the most efficient, you know, to increase the efficiency for a rider within, you know, within the context of enjoying their time on a bicycle. So you know, when something like a complete rotor system bike didn't really make sense, which it doesn't, uh, then he started looking at other ways, avenues to bring that to light. So one thing that we've seen a big rise in is the interest in shorter cranks. You know, for your listeners who can't see me, I'm five foot four. Um, historically, you know, when I was racing full time, I ran a 170 crank, 170 mil link crank. Um, if I bought a extra small or a small mountain bike it still came with a 175 crank and you know it it took me a while to figure out that the crank length for me really made a big difference in like i always say that you know you're either a spinner or a masher in your pedal stroke style and i tend to bounce around a lot this is kind of how my brain works so feel free to refocus me if, if that's helpful um but i'm a spinner so i'm not like a pedal masher that's just like churning big gears. I'm not a big, powerful rider, kind of small. And so the way that I make power is I spin up a gear. And if my crank is too long, I can't turn it over quickly enough to generate the power I need to. And it's not like all of a sudden I become muscle type wise, 
like a mashing, you know, a big powerful writer. So it just means I'm actually fatiguing myself and less effective in my writing. So crank link, my long answer to that question is crank link became a thing. And then yeah. as power so that, leaders. So that was a, that, I was just going to say, so that was an opportunity for them to convince writers that there was a reason to upgrade cranks and build the case that rotor is making a crank that is worthy of the upgrade in those early days i imagine it was one of very few options that had multiple lengths proportional mm -hmm. lengths available yep. you know it used to be 170 and 175 were the only ones in town and as longtime listeners of the show will attest like we've had conversations a lot of conversations about proportional crank lengths and the importance mm -hmm. and benefits of it so totally get that. How did, when they started making cranks, what was, was there something about the manufacturing process? What materials were they using Ooh, that were, yeah. again, in, in addition to attracting people to the length, what, mm -hmm. what were the other attributes that riders were considering when upgrading? So here's something, um, well, first of all, weight, but uh, something that I don't know if everybody knows, we actually manufacture in Spain. So everybody says, oh, designed in Italy. We actually have our factories in Madrid. It's, it's pretty amazing. I mean, I'm, Obviously, we're primarily from a country that isn't really a manufacturing country that much anymore. So going to a place, it's like going into Willy Wonka's, you know, factory. You're just, it's, you know, amazing bike parts and like machines, like CNC machines and, you know, lifelong CNC technicians that are milling these out. So yeah, kind of within that, so they came up with a, some of our older cranks were called 3D and that actually meant for the three drilling. So we use a seven series and aeronautic grade aluminum. So it's a harder aluminum, um, which allows us to take out more material. It's more expensive. It's stiffer. Um, a six series, which is what like, for instance, most Shimano is made out of and what our lower series cranks are made out of. Um, that has a little more, a little more flex. Um, and, uh, and also you have to leave in more material in order to make it as, as strong. Does that make sense? Yeah. So um, the seven series is allows us to take out the maximum amount of material, allows us to make a super light, super stiff crank. Um, a couple of years ago, we released um, a new modular system, which took the total parts for a crank and ring set from 22 down to 14, which means you have fewer interfaces for creaking and, you know, wobbling loose and all of the things that happen when you have interfaces um, what it also meant is that it took, let's say if a Durace crank set was 650 grams, it took it down to 600 grams and that's still for alloy. So a very, very durable material. Uh, we do have some carbon cranks as well. And those are even lighter. I think on the mountain bike side, it's the lightest mountain bike power meter on the market. And on the road side, it's, I believe the lightest next to something like a THM. So it's just and, you know, half the price or a third the price. So it's just absolutely, as we say, it's sick light. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a pretty cool material story in addition to, um, yeah, and, and manufacturing in addition to the manufacturing. Yeah. And when, when you think about selling carbon cranks, are there any concerns about durability or is the, the way they're, they're manufactured as durable as an aluminum crank? I mean, to me, a carbon crank is almost never going to be as, as durable as aluminum. So that's actually yeah. one of the things that I think increases the applicability for somebody that's riding on and off road combined. 
but you know everybody's got a different set of considerations you know um maybe most of the gravel you ride isn't flying up and hitting your cranks i don't know i mean you know maybe it's chunder or <laughs> as we call it um so perhaps a carbon crank is going to be just as durable but really you have to leave a lot of material i mean there are other crank manufacturers that do very heavy carbon cranks that are heavier than our aluminum cranks and maybe those are as durable but at that point what's yeah. the point you know i mean i guess you have the carbon look but yeah you know. yeah yeah and then so it it seems like with all that focus on chain rings and cranks it was probably natural although a giant leap to start offering a power meter can mm. you talk about sort of why the company decided to ch jump into that market and what perspective they brought that might have been different than other power meters that were out on the market? Well, you have a few different pieces. One, it was becoming more common. You know, back when Pablo started the company, it was something that even professionals didn't have on their bikes, right? And then it was professionals. And then now it's just that, you know, it's kind of a standard piece of equipment like a heart rate monitor was 20 years ago, right? Um, so I think the fact that it became something that was going to be more within reach for consumers was important. But really, you know, Rotor is all about um, performance and staying in line. You know, we're working with these Tour de France teams. This year, of course, it's with Intermarche. We worked with Dimension Data for a long time, Israel Premier Tech, you know, all of these teams. And they needed a power meter. And we don't want them running someone else's power meter, of course. So, um, yeah, so they started. But it was, it was a huge project. I mean, and we partnered with uh, Indra, which is a... Um, a company that provides, you know, strain gauges, basically the hardware for um, pieces of the Spanish government, which is pretty wild to to basically help us with the the internals. And then we created our own software and it pairs obviously with all the ANT plus Bluetooth, you know, Wahoo head units, Garmin, you know, you name it, all of them. Um, but we wanted to have our own software as well. The other Thing, and we already touched upon oval rings, of course, is that, um, again, not to like go too deep down a tech nerd hole, but it's um, if you don't, if your rate of record for a power meter isn't frequent enough, it will give you an incorrect reading on an oval chain ring. Because if you're only sampling data at two points on the chain ring, well, because the chain ring is not round and it's maximizing it here and minimizing it here, then it's going to not give you accurate power readings. Yeah, so yeah. we needed to make a power meter that gave, you know, that was actually reading essentially in real time. So our power meters have the most rapid rate of record of any power meter in the industry. I mean, in part by virtue of wanting to make sure we're giving accurate power readouts with one of our flagship products, e.g. the oval rings. Got it. Got it. <laughs> Taking a step back for a second, just to kind of set the stage. And I imagine I'm not alone in being a little bit um, less familiar with power meters. Mm. So I recall kind of originally there were hub-based power meters and then later crank-based power meters. How does the system actually work? Like where is the, where are those, um, where are those data points coming from mm -hmm. within the rotor system? And how maybe does that differ from other in the, people in the market's approach to getting power data? Well, we have a few different models, so they kind of they re record a little differently. 
But like if you take our twin power, which actually is one of the only power meters that's recording left and right data independently, right? Um, then there are um, two sets of paired strain gauges in the axle, two sets of paired strain gauges in the drive side arm, and they are reading um, the left and right leg, basically. Okay, so that, and they, and just for clarity, that's in the crank axle and each crank mm -hmm, arm, right? Mm -hmm, okay. Right. And so uh, one of the other interesting pieces is we were just talking about, boy, I feel like I'm getting so deep in the weeds here. Tell me, like, I can go, I can go down this, but I'm like, I'm like going back into material science. Um, so uh, one of the things you have is you always have exper uh, metal, um, excuse me, material expansion and contraction. And so with temperature, right, you know, that's, that's just a thing. And so one of the pieces of programming that you have to uh, account for in all of your power units is it's it's basically got a thermometer in it. I mean, it's the, the technology behind these things. It's it's to me, it's kind of amazing. And you have accelerometers and all of the different pieces that allow it to provide uh, incredibly reliable data. So to plus minus one and a half percent, which is one of the most accurate on the market. And I actually I was talking with the power meter engineer last year at Eurobike and I was asking her about it. I was like, well, why don't you know she's like well we have to, i was asking her why it's not more accurate basically she's like well if it were actually reading in real time if it if we didn't do that power smoothing of one and a half percent then it, the numbers would change so fast you wouldn't be able to read them to use them. <laughs> i was like oh right. who knew <laughs> um yeah so that we also have other units that are um spider based and so then it's a you know single sided with a virtual dual sided um okay one of the so other pieces in that scenario with the spider based one uh -huh. then it's making some assumptions right around your left left leg as well as your right leg correct it's using fancy math yeah yeah um and one of the one of the other pieces though is that you have to make sure that they're very impact resistant all of our power meters are IPX7. Um, we actually just released a new InSpider for, um, which is the Spider-based power system, right? Um, the a new InSpider MTB for uh, obviously for the mountain bike. And one of the cool things there, it's, it's IPX7 plus, I think is what it's called. IPX7 basically means it's a rating that tells you you can uh, take it up to a meter underwater for up to 30 minutes before it'll be contaminated. So that means, especially if you're riding off-road, let's say in a gravel circumstance, if you have a creek crossing, you don't have to worry about contamination for your power meter. You're not going to short-circuit anything. The electronics are, electronics are all going to be fine. Um, with the 7 Plus, it also means that it's sealed against really fine pulver, really fine dust, which might be really germane as well on um, an off-road circumstance, obviously. To help the to help us understand, like so, to get one of these power meters on your your bike, you need to get a rotor crank set, right? So there's the the two two crank arm version mm -hmm. that you can replace your existing crank arm with mm -hmm. the spider version. Are you still getting that with a crank set? Yes. So the interface is for our cranks, um, and um, I know there are other power meter brands that offer a single crank upgrade. You know, we did that for a while and um, it just it wasn't as good a system as providing the whole crank and power meter unit. I know there are also 
power meters that you can just replace the axle, but then you have problems. You, they all have their own problems. So we wanted one that was going to be as reliable and as accurate as possible. So we felt like the best solution for that was providing the whole crank and chain ring uh, solution. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm. So for your interest in the gravel market, I know you guys have been active out there at various mm -hmm. events, Oh yeah, both participating and having trade show booths there. Where, what products are you seeing gravel riders kind of uh, focus on in your lineup? So, um, I mean, the simple answer is uh, like the cranks and the power meters. I mean, we do a direct mount chain ring that's a 4832. Uh, again, this was part of the design award. We, uh, because the direct mount chain ring is a single piece of mill. It's actually, it's, it's like a work of art, honestly. Um, a 4832, which normally you can't do smaller than a 34-tooth ring on a spider-based system. That's why Shimano struggled for so long before GRX, right? Um, was that you have to have at least a 110 BCD, the bolt count diameter, in order to, you know, for, for their cranks, right? So we have the 4830, um, 40, 4832, we have the 4630s, which are specific gravel gearings, um, we're also doing full one by ranges in that are 11 and 12 speed compatible. We launched last year universal tooth technology, which means it'll work with your Shimano 12 speed, as well as your SRAM 12 speed, as well as your, you know, whatever, whatever you're running rotor. Um, so it's, it's pretty cool because it kind of, it seems so dorky, but, um, the, uh, tooth technology is sort of a little bit like an arms race. Each company is always trying to make something that no one else's stuff will work with to kind of lock you into a system. Yeah. And so to be able to um, have the intellectual property that allows you to kind of thread that, you know, that, that needle, it's, it's yeah. pretty cool. So one by rings that work with everybody's, you know, everybody's product. Um, I mean, from a 28 all the way up to a, 58 honestly <laughs> it's pretty wild and does if one was looking to upgrade to a rotor crank set uh do they need to replace their bottom bracket in order to do so Ooh, that's a good question also um so the the easy answer is no uh we make cranks in a 24 and 30 mil axle again i kind of start to i'm like ah how how deep into the weeds am i going to go um but we also we make bottom brackets that are we use enduro bearings and um, they're absolutely, you know, they're just top, best in class. Um, we manufacture all the shells and everything in Spain. Again, it's just really good quality product and replacing, quite frankly, replacing bottom brackets is something that we should all do if you're riding a lot of miles multiple times a year. If you're not riding a lot of miles, at least once a year. And especially, you know, we're talking about creek crossings, bottom brackets, anyone's bottom bracket after a creek crossing or two, take that apart. Give it a little love. Anyway, <laughs> your bearings will thank you. You know, it's so a great manufacturer. Got, so if I've got a Shimano bottom bracket in there, it's mm -hmm. a one-to-one -one replacement. Is that the That's same with a SRAM, a SRAM dub BB, for example? So, yes, it is. And so the Shimano only uses 24 mil spindle. So again, back into our fun material science, a 24 mil spindle has to be steel. Rotor prefers the 30 mil aluminum simply because it's stiffer. Steel, of course, has flex. That's why we don't ride steel bikes anymore. Um, and it's also lighter. Aluminum is lighter than steel. Um, 
the reason that Shimano likes the 24 mil spindle is that uh, you can run a slightly bigger bearing size with that bottom bracket, right? And um, which adds to bottom bracket durability. However, you know, you're talking a $30 a year difference in, in material costs as far as like replacing your bottom bracket if you went with the 30 mil more efficient, lighter aluminum uh, spindle. That being said, we do make a 24 mil axle. It's just not our favorite. <laughs> so if you, if you were replacing it on your Shimano bottom bracket, you would replace it with the 24 mil axle uh, version of our cranks. Got it. While this next product I'm going to ask about isn't something that you guys are from intending from a marketing perspective to be mm -hmm. for the gravel rider, I think I'd be remiss in having a conversation with Rotor without talking about it. And that's your hydraulic drivetrain. Oh, dude. Can you kind of explain how that works? Oh, it's amazing. Um, and honestly, I feel like gravel is the best application, but okay. you know, this it's the, I have a one by 13 setup on my gravel bike. Um, we had a rider win, you know, the uh, erstwhile gravel worlds on it a couple of times, um, you know, a few years ago. And it's been, it's been raced at Unbound. It's been, yeah, it's been kind of raced in all of these so situations. Let's talk about what it is. Okay. I think that won't be clear at this point. So yeah. we're talking about a derailleur, shifters, uh -huh. Uh -huh. cassette. Yep. And not only are we talking about those things, we're talking about the mechanism for shifting being hydraulic mm -hmm. like m m many of us are most aware of hydraulics with respect to disc brakes yeah so explain totally. how a hydraulic powered derailleur works well so it's mechanical hydraulic right and so when you use the gear shifter it basically triggers a little lever that then shifts the um the rear derailleur and it's a one by system it's a push-push system. So then when you go to shift up, uh, basically there's a, you know, the hydraulic fluid releases a little spring and then it like, you know, goes up the cassette, right? Okay. Um, so we're imagining sort of we've got a much like a brake uh, mm -hmm. hose going through the frame. We've got a hydraulic hose going for the, through the shift lever with mineral oil in it. When I throw the lever, I'm basically pushing that mineral oil, which is then shifting the derailleur up. Mm -hmm. And then as I'm releasing it via the level, lever, I'm kind of releasing a little bit of oil, ergo the, mm -hmm. the derailleur is shifting mm -hmm. a little bit more. Yeah. And so it's a closed system. So you don't end up with, you know, like with a cable system, you end up with friction and replacing cables and all that. Um, yeah. I'm like, I get very, um, you know, in most of my life, I'm very digitally involved, right? When I ride my bicycle, I'm pretty darn analog. Of course, I still have a power meter and I, you know, occasionally bust out my head unit so I can see the numbers, although that's more depressing now than anything else. But I, I don't want to have to remember to charge my bike. You know, yesterday I was going to try and ride midday and then it started storming. So I didn't get to ride. I kind of threw a little tantrum and, you know, cleaned some of the house and then uh, went out yesterday evening. And if I had kind of decided for a last minute ride without having charged my bike and then my bike's not you know like my derailleur's not charged how bummed am i like it's one thing to have a power meter and i don't get to have my power readout and that's just shame on me but it's another thing if it keeps me from riding my bike anyway so i'm just you know i get kind of kind of salty about it 
<laughs> I know. When did the drivetrain get introduced and are mm -hmm. any of the pro road teams that you're working with riding on that drivetrain? Um, so we brought out the first one, which was called the Uno Group um, in 2017, 2018. And um, long story short, the last year or during the pandemic, we sold 100% of production to a couple of European OEs. And so there were none for, you know, you know, for, I mean, we had a couple like of individual athletes, but when you, when you supply a pro road team, you're giving them 200 group sets, like, yeah. and that's, it is because we manufactured hundred percent of the parts in Spain. Like we're talking molding the hoods, you know, like this is so far from like, milling you know cnc cranks but you know you figure it out you learn to do it but so many parts that it is kind of a a it's a it's a crown jewel but it's also like a loss leader it's not our bread and butter if you will gotcha. um, the other thing is i think we saw a few years ago with uh the aqua sapone team um in one of the early spring races uh, you will pry a front derailleur from the roadies cold dead hands like <laughs> <laughs> gravel riders a lot more flexible i don't i mean i don't need a front derailleur you know but like roadies i mean heck they went on strike in the 90s when people made them start wearing you know the uci started making them wear helmets like you know <laughs> how long is it going to take them to, i mean tubeless technology just breaks anyway like whatever you know we so uh true. we get to be the uh the vanguard greg gravel yeah, riders i think it's not like i think it's Super interesting, just the hydraulic powered derailleur. Oh, powered great. is being the power is probably the wrong word, but hydraulic yeah, actuated. activated, actuated mm -hmm. there. I knew mm -hmm. I would get there. Mm -hmm. Anyway, super cool, Laura. I appreciate the overview of Rotor. Um, put a link in the show notes to Rotor America's website so yep. people can check out the crank sets, which I think, again, as we said, is probably the most interesting product, particularly mm -hmm. if you're interested in either considering a power meter. Or equally important, considering optimizing your crank length based on mm -hmm. your body type mm -hmm. and style. Rotor is a, a great option for people to consider. It's really, it's some neat stuff. I mean, it's worthwhile to check out. We have a great customer service team out of Salt Lake City, um, technical support. Um, and really, you know, like kind of coming back to the power meters, it's, again, for me, I just want to enjoy the experience of riding my bike. And sometimes I, I want data as well. But mostly I want to have something that's extremely reliable and, you know, and doesn't doesn't get in my way, doesn't keep me from getting on the bike, certainly. And so for me, you know, the power meters and the cranks, it's all it's just set and forget. You know, you leave it alone. Um, yeah. yeah, it's fun. Right on. Yeah. Well, thanks for all the time, Lori. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was uh, great. Great talking with you. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Gravel Ride Podcast. Big thanks to Lori for coming on the show and telling us all about rotor bicycle components. Another thank you goes out to our friends at Hammerhead and the Hammerhead Carew 2 computer. Remember, use the code THEGRAVELRIDE for that free heart rate monitor strap. If you're looking to connect with me, I encourage you to join the ridership. That's www.theridership.com. That's a free global cycling community connecting gravel cyclists all around the world. If you're able to support the show, please visit buymeacoffee.com slash the gravel ride or ratings and reviews are a free way in which you can help us out a great deal in connecting with other gravel cyclists around the globe. 
Until next time, here's to finding some dirt under your wheels.